morning, everyone. My name is Randy DeTurk. Hopefully, there's not too much glare up here. If you get it, no. Anyway, it's my honor today to read um, Psalm 8 to you. So, if you want to start looking for that, if you get the Bibles in front of the chairs in front of you, it's on page 474, the CSB. Some kind of interesting, I wanted to give you that. So I held the Bible, I said, Psalms ought to be about here. Flopped it right open to that page. I know we've all done that, but to me, that's saying there's something special for us in this Psalm today. Uh, it went away. I was going to read out of the Bible, but I realized I can't see it. So welcome everyone, by the way, especially the visitors, everyone at home. And if you would, please just follow along. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe, I'm sorry, I'm having difficulty here. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is you, a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. So, let's pray, please. Father God, we just want to declare we love you today. We give you praise, glory, and honor, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word, and we love your word, Lord. It is timeless. It's never changing. Same yesterday, today, and forever. There's freedom in knowing that. We don't have to worry about what is culturally acceptable because your word never changes. Father, I just pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, our eyes, Lord, to what you have for us today. I know there's something special for each and every one of us. I pray that you would give Paul the exact words to say. Just give him uh, just an eloquence in what he says today, and we just thank you for his willingness to give us this word. Once again, we just love you, Lord, and we pray these things now in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, hello again. It's nice, it's nice to still see you here. <laughs> so a um, couple of months ago when we were looking at the calendar and Matthew had some Sundays that he was not going to be preaching, he had vacation this week, I thought, boy, this would be, it looks like a great Sunday. We're doing music, so I know we'll be here. And we had had a, the intention to be camping at least a few times this summer and weren't sure when. And so this would be great. I know we'll be here because we're playing music. And um, as it so happens, we haven't had a chance yet to go camping. We've been here every weekend, and I realized 
the idea of preaching and the logistics of that while doing music are just not as easy as uh, it seemed to be a couple of months ago. So, <laughs> But here, here we are, and here we are this morning, and it is a great uh, privilege and honor to be able to preach God's Word to you. Uh, this morning. It's a sacred thing to open the Bible together and to hear from our Father. And I wonder, do we come to church expecting to hear from and encounter our Father? And as we corporately lift our gaze to Him, as we bring our worship to Him, to lay our requests and expose our needs to Him, that He will draw near to us, as it says in James 4, 8, as we draw near to him. Come, Yahweh, and draw near to us as we open your word together and discover what wisdom you want to teach us from Psalm 8 today. Now, being the non-professional preacher that I am, I did not prepare any slides for you to look at. I'm actually just catching up on the fact that for the past 10 or 20 years, they're not called PowerPoints anymore. Um, thanks to Russ and his persistent coaching. Um, this would be one of those psalms where a seasoned professional would have found all sorts of these amazing pictures as, we, as Randy just read of the expanse of the universe and the glories held within there. And we could have all the different displays of the way that that looks. Um, but I, I didn't prepare any of those. Um, so afterwards, you can go turn on the Nature Channel and actually see what I would have probably picked out anyway um, if you need the visual help. Uh, and in fact, I didn't even get any scripture references uh, that I'm going to read for you to follow along with. And I appreciated George this morning as he came in and he said, phew, that sure makes me feel good because I, I have a hard time pulling those together myself. And I said, George, man, we're on the same page. All right. I did prepare a sermon though. So it's Scripture references aside, uh, I apologize for that, but if you have your Bible and your notebook at hand, it'll feel a little bit like those old-fashioned times when you know, staring at the ceiling or your feet was recognized as the spiritual position of the day instead of staring at the flashing projections on the screen. And you all know that I'm not as excitable or animated as Pastor Matthew is, who keeps your eyes alert by like darting all over the stage this way and that way. Man, brother, like, how do you do that? All right? Like, I get done listening to Pastor Matthew, and I'm like worn out. <laughs> Man, that was an exercise, and I'm just watching. So I'll probably stay fairly rooted to this spot right here. Uh, but I do welcome any well-placed amens and, and preach it, brothers. Con uh, brother, comments to help hold your attention as I unpack these words given in Psalm 8. All right. The title of Psalm 8 says, this is a psalm, song written by David for the choir director or chief musician on the Gittith or upon Gittith. This psalm and two others have this word Gittith in the title. The other two are Psalm 81 and Psalm 84, both psalms of Asaph, who was a Levite, a worship leader, prophet, and seer of Israel. Scholars have suggested different possibilities for this word, but a similarity between these three psalms likely is the key to the meaning of Gittith, since they all share a joyous character, so we can find to expect, 
expect to find a psalm of delight and joyfulness. Verse 1. Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. What a strong anthem that David starts right off with. A rallying cry that anchors not only the following verses of this psalm, but we can see is descriptive of the foundation for the creator-centered worldview that rings out within the pages of this book beginning to end. And while it seems like a pretty straightforward proclamation, it raises two obvious questions that we should ask in order to deepen our understanding of this verse. The first question is, what is our Lord's name? Second question is, how is his name majestic in all the earth? Because given that we are a part of the category in all the earth, that we must be involved in understanding and recognizing his majesty. So first, what is his name? Well, knowing for a while that I was preaching this psalm, I had been jotting down ideas and was really excited to remind us, family, why Matthew has made a habit of saying God's personal name when he reads from the Word. And if you were here last week, you will know that Matthew completely took the wind right out of my sails and preached a beautiful overview of God's name and why it's important to know. Thank you, brother. You sent me back to the drawing board of ideas this week to come up with some new thoughts, but that's a wonderful thing because there are plenty of new thoughts, and it is yet again a privilege to speak about the name of God this morning. That proper name underlies the first word, Lord, here, which is Yahweh. It shows up written in most Bibles as Lord with capital letters, but Lord is not a proper name. He has a name. Lord is a very general word in English, and while it describes a correct idea, it's not specific. And it is not incredibly helpful and powerful to identify, it is incredibly helpful and powerful to identify who we are talking about by name. When we know a name, we can begin to identify that person's character and characteristics. Have you noticed how a relationship changes with a person when you know their name? As you look around this room, there are many people whose names that you know. There are also many people whose names you don't know. And when you don't know someone's name, it's uncomfortable. Or if you get a name wrong, like I did a couple of weeks ago in church, I got, the name, I got somebody's name wrong, and I was like, oh, man, you know how to do this? You feel so awkward. Um, when we know someone's name, the relationship deepens to a new level. And so it is with God, whose name is Yahweh. Where do we learn this name of God? Let's go back to Exodus 3, 11 through 15, where God answers this question of a name directly to Moses. It says, but Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out to Egypt? An interesting note here that Moses asks, Moses asking, who am I to God of the universe is just like what David is asking in Psalm 4. And it makes me wonder if David is reflecting on this passage as he writes. And God answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. 
When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you to me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites. Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. God says to Moses, I am who I am, which means to be, to exist. Yahweh is existence itself. He was not created. He has no beginning or end. He simply is. Yahweh is the Hebrew name for this existence. So why do our Bibles write Lord in capitals instead of Yahweh? which has accomplished at least one outcome of separating us from an understanding and familiarity of God's name and of fulfilling this command in Exodus to be remembered as Yahweh in every generation. There are some good intentions behind the history of the use of God's name in the scriptures. The ancient writers had tremendous reverence regarding the holiness of God's name. So over time, as a way to honor the sacred nature of this divine name, they would replace the personal name Yahweh with the more generic Hebrew term Adonai, which translates in our language as Lord. So why is this important? Let me tell you of a conversation that Jill and I had with some good friends of ours who are not Christians. They are part of that large group of people who call themselves spiritual They would affirm some of the things that we believe about God in this world that we live in. But here's this fascinating comment that they have made. When we have discussed our beliefs together, they specifically do not want to put a name on what or who they believe in. They're comfortable with the idea that there's some kind of supernatural force guiding this cosmic dance and will meditate to be in harmony and work to align their minds with a spiritual mystery. But they emphatically and most specifically do not want to put a name to this spiritual transcendent life force being thing. It is like, you know, like playing a game of hide and seek, except that if you find what you're seeking for, you lose the game. I, I don't really understand it. It's like they're afraid to find what they're seeking. This is the complete opposite of the heart of Yahweh, who says in Jeremiah 29, 13 through 14, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. Or how about Isaiah 55, 6? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Or Amos 5, 4, For the Lord says to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Or Psalm 9, verse 10. Maybe I can steal something from Matthew's message next week. Those who know your name trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Yahweh. And this begs the question, 
why would someone not want to put a name to God and to know who he is? I think we know why. You see, because generically recognizing some unnamed spiritual life force deceptively tricks us into also generically deciding that we are pretty good on our own. And now we get to create the standard by which we understand and judge ourselves in this world. Because to truly know God's name means that we must become responsible to that God on his terms. In declaring to know the name of God, it forces the question, what are you going to do with this knowledge? Will you reject and rebel against the one who made you, denying his name? Or will you lift your hands to the heavens with David and declare, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is all your name, your name in all the earth. And it is specifically around this idea of God's name that makes the Christian faith unique and wonderful. We have a God who has revealed his identity and said, this is who I am. Know my character. This is how I created you in this magnificent world that is perfectly suited for you to thrive in. Here's the purpose for which I created you. Here's my plan for this world. Here's my purpose for your life. This is the future destination of those who know me, where you will inherit glory and reside in perfect fellowship with me forever. I am God. There is no other name under heaven that should receive praise. I am God. My name is Yahweh. How magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. This is an amazing declaration. Your name, Yahweh, is magnificent throughout the earth. Well, David would have obviously known that the world included vast numbers of people who did not recognize Yahweh as magnificent. Why would David make this exclusive proposition about the transcendence of Yahweh? He says something similar in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of Yahweh and this expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Well, David is going to lay out reasons why Yahweh is worthy to be magnified throughout the, the earth in the following verses in Psalm 8. But elsewhere, the Bible also speaks about how Yahweh is known throughout the earth. Romans 1, 19 through 20, says, Since what can be known about Yahweh is evident among them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. And catch what Jesus reveals in Luke 19 as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the stones will cry out. Creation itself exuberantly testifies that his name is magnificent and his majesty is abounding throughout the heavens. Verse 2. 
From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. The first thing David will use to highlight Yahweh's magnificence is weak and helpless babies. Do we catch a bit of irony here? Yahweh, your magnificence is on radiant display over all of the heavens. Your power is unrivaled. There's no other God that can create life. And you established strength in what is the most weak and powerless object, babies. Many will say, what kind of majestic God is this? This is not the image of power and strength that we want to describe our God. Consider this. Do you not think that David has his own life story in mind when he made this statement? You can't help but wonder about one of the defining moments in David's life when, as a young and insignificant child, he faced what was the primary physical threat to Israel as the giant Goliath, the very model of a powerful and strong adversary, shook his fist in defiance against the people of Yahweh and Yahweh himself. And by all sense and human advantage, Goliath should have prevailed upon those threats and laid low to defeat the Israelites and dishonor Yahweh. But what does David say in 1 Samuel 17, 45? You come against me with sword, spear, and javelin, But I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpse of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. In other words, not by strength, or physical power, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. And if you know how the story ends, God used a mere boy named David to silence his enemy because the strength of Yahweh was established in what appeared to be most weak. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven and 28. Instead, God chose, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing. What is viewed as something. You know, this is one of the, the remarkable and surprising narratives in which Yahweh has chosen to unfold his story in this universe. Over and over again, he uses what is weak to accomplish what seems impossible, to shut the mouth of his accusers. Case in point, Luke 2, 11 and 12. It feels a little like Christmassy in here, so we're going to bring some Christmas spirit into the into the morning. It says, the angel proclaimed to the shepherds, today in the city of David, a savior was born for you, who is Messiah the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. 
the Savior of the world, did not come in might and power with all of the glory of the heavenly hosts and the authority of God Most High positioned before the kings and the powers of this world, the great unveiling of God's long-awaited plan for the rescue of the world was announced to shepherds in an obscure village who were told to look for their Messiah in an animal's manger. And the power-hungry enemy of this world, Satan, and all of his evil minions who are eager to display their strength and oppress the weak would never condescend to embark on a plan like this, for they are blind in their greed for power. And as this little baby grew into a man and began preaching about the wisdom of God, what does he say at his sermon on the mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. The wisdom of God, having the appearance of weakness, will bring low and silence the foolish strong of this world, to which all those who hunger and thirst for that type of righteousness can Declare joyfully with the psalmist, Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. Verses 3 and 4. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. This would be that time when like, you know, that grand picture of the galaxies would be on the screen. We'd see all the different, you know, universes out there and, you know, be in awe of that. You can imagine that. Also imagine for a moment David sitting out on a warm Judean night up in one of the open air balconies where he could meditate on the resplendent majesty of the heavens. There's no light pollution he would see the heavenly expanse unfolding before him in all of its star-filled wonder, and it left him speechless, in awe at the immeasurable power of Creator Yahweh. When he could see a couple thousand shiny objects in the heavens, he had no idea that there are actually around 200 billion galaxies, billions of light years away, all unfathomable and incomprehensible vastness, he remarks at the real potential insignificance of humanity in context of the wonders of God and his creative marvels. I came across a wonderful paragraph written by a minister and a science teacher and writer, Dr. Thomas Dick, in a book titled The Solar System, written in 1846. And he says, a survey of the solar system has a tendency to moderate the pride of man and to promote humility. There's an understatement. Pride is one of the distinguishing, he continues, pride is one of the distinguishing characteristics of puny man and has been one of the chief causes of all the contentions, wars, devastations, systems of slavery, and ambitious projects which have desolated and demoralized our sinful world. Yet, 
There is no disposition more incongruous to the character and circumstance of man. Perhaps there are no rational beings throughout the universe among whom pride would appear more unseemly or incompatible than in man considering the situation in which he is placed. He is exposed to numerous degradations and calamities, to the rage of storms and tempests, the devastations of earthquakes and volcanoes, and the fury of whirlwinds and the tempestuous billows of the ocean, to the ravages of the sword and famine, pestilence, and numerous diseases, and at length he must sink into the grave and his body must become the companion of worms. The most dignified and haughty of the sons of men are liable to these and similar degradations as well as the meanest of the human family, yet in such circumstances, man, that puny worm of the dust, whose knowledge is so limited and whose follies are so numerous and glaring, has the effrontery to strut in all the haughtiness of pride and to glory in his shame. End of quote. Is it not remarkable with what ease we place ourselves on the throne in exaltation of our own greatness and to look out on a world in which we are completely incapable of contributing to its creation or even understanding its essence and to proclaim with bold assertion, how great I art. (laughs) But David, the most powerful man on earth, At the time, the king of Israel who possessed Yahweh's favor looks to the heavens and marvels in awe at the wonder of Yahweh on display and proclaims how great thou art. And chief among the reasons that David marvels at the greatness of Yahweh is that he remembers and looks after humans. And after observing the great expanse of the universe, that it is, in fact, an incredibly marvelous thing to ponder. Yahweh hasn't lost or misplaced or forgotten us, drifting off into oblivion, some tiny persons on a tiny planet like a single grain of sand on an endless seashore. I'm certain that we can all relate to the experience, and some would say the privilege, of owning an endless collection of unimportant junk that we cannot ever seem to find when we need it, nor can ever summon the courage to get rid of it when we don't. And said junk that lurks in the shadows of our drawer of unmentionables, or with the dust bunnies under the bed, we can testify to how easily forgotten items of little value can be. But Yahweh hasn't created any items of little value. In fact, things that we find of little value that he created, like a single sparrow within a flock. What do the scriptures have to say? Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. Randy, I actually counted yours this morning. But... (laughs) That is an impressive statement, though. (laughs) So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. What wonderful hope this is. So take heart. Any of you who feel overlooked and unimportant, 
Yahweh has not relegated his creation to the junk drawer in one of his many mansions in the back 40. He remembers you. He knows you. And he looks out after you. Remember what I said earlier, that it is one of the grand lies of our greatest enemy, Satan, that we would feel as if we live in a generic universe overseen by some generic God, leaving us unmoored from any real purpose, uncertain of any real value. But this is not so. For the creator and caretaker of the galaxies knows you by name, you are a special creation made for, the pur- for a purpose and loved by Yahweh. Amen, Amen to that. Yeah. Verses five through eight. In, and in spite of David having drawn attention to our obvious frailties and potential insignificance amongst the glories of the created universe, he well knows the creation story laid out in the book of Genesis and so expresses a poetic summary of that story as he pens the next few verses and he ups the ante, stating not only that we are remembered and looked after, but that you made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the seas that pass through the currents of the seas. This passage hearkens to original creation. When Yahweh made mankind and established a value and an authority that we have within creation that is different than any other created being. Most people are pretty familiar with the creation narrative and it makes a grand statement in David's marveling on the majesty of Yahweh. But if you were to think about this for a moment, you might feel like something is off. Something seems a bit untrue or maybe unfulfilled. Because if we are in fact the rulers over the works of Yahweh's hands, how are we doing with that? When we look at the world around us, could we give humanity any kind of glowing review for how we have handled the authority to rule this world as special representatives of the creator himself? Well, it should not surprise anybody that there is a larger story that's going on in this universe and within these verses in Psalm 8 and used to give us some insight into this story. Because the story of the Bible is one. If you were in core seminar, Matthew taught this in biblical theology as well as at some points you might remember the whiteboard where he you know, scribbled a bunch of stuff on the whiteboard and one of those things is the summary of the story of the Bible as it describes our real human existence in this way. There was the creation, there's the rebellion, there's the rescue, and there's a new creation. And while Yahweh created us and gave us rule over all of his creation to name, to care for, and to tend this good earth, humans proved to be rebellious rulers We broke the purity of this authority, which God vested in us within his good work of creation. And as a result, we have poisoned all of creation 
through our rebellious rule. This is why, in spite of all of the marvels of human achievement and experience in 2023, we are no closer to peace, harmony, spiritual satisfaction, and a sense of rightness in the world than were our ancestors thousands of years ago. We've made no progress on that front. And I don't need to describe all of the ways in which this is evident because we feel it and we know it moment by moment. And the New Testament writers understood this and have used Psalm 8 to point us to this larger story that is unfolding. We find reference to Psalm 8 in a few places. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, 27. It's in Ephesians 1, 22, and it's in Hebrews 2, 5 through 9 which I'll read. Hebrews says, For he is not subjected to angels, the world to come that we are talking about, but someone, somewhere, <coughs> Q, that's David, in Psalm 8, what says, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. And it is, as it is, we do not yet see everything subject to him, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. And in Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, it says, he exercised his power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power, dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And here's Psalm 8, and he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Now, don't you hate it when someone says, we don't have time to unpack all of this now. So there's a lot in those verses that we could talk about and be unpacked and explained. But here's the connection that's being made by these authors quoting Psalm 8. And here's what I want you to remember and kind of the point of where we're going. It is the good news of the Bible being mixed into the story everywhere you turn the page. I just made the comment a few moments ago that something seems off and not quite right by David declaring the status we hold in the heavens and the authority that we possess all, over all of creation. What we see instead is the fallout and wreckage of a broken authority and a royalty who has been brought to its knees in condemnation under the guilty verdict of rebellious Sinners against the great I am, Yahweh, the creator and judge of the world. We have, in fact, missed the mark of what David is describing as what was and what ought, but not what is. And in the midst of this dire and tragic situation, here we discover another name, Jesus and it is being said in the passages that I just read that Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of the one who David is describing. 
And beyond that, the New Testament writers through Psalm 8 argue that Jesus, who was creator, God, and man's flesh, humbled himself, remember verse 2, and became lower than the angels, suffering the pain of death in order to make payment in blood to secure the pardon for sinful and rebellious humanity, paving the way for our rescue and establishing a righteous kingdom under whose magnificent authority our own rule over a new creation will be heralded where we will once again be crowned with glory and honor to reign on the earth. Wow, what a story. And if you aren't sure of the certainty of all of those claims, let's read Revelation 5, 9 through 10. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on the earth. It's all right there. And many other places in the Bible declaring the same. What a story. And so... This psalm ends right where it began. This story's overarching narrative has its roots firmly planted in the declaration that Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. But before we close this chapter and consider it understood, I want to bring our attention to one more idea being unfolded. In this verse that we haven't discussed, the second word, Lord, here comes from the word Adonai. This word is translated as Lord, and it is not used exclusively as a term for Yahweh, but instead means a sovereign, a master, a ruler, a king. And David here says of Yahweh, he is our Adonai our sovereign king. Let me ask you a dead serious question. The kind of question like your life depends on it. Is this true for you? Because the way this story ends, as I described, consistent with the biblical narrative, is not the way that it ends for everyone. Not everyone will be rescued from the punishment of their sinful rebellion against their magnificent creator. The Bible describes over and over again in different manners that there are two pathways with two vastly different destinations for mankind. And Christians often make the mistake through an abundance of caution to speak as if we are all on the road that ends in our royal priesthood and eternal rule with King Jesus. But family, we are not. There is a road whose end is destruction. And many are with resolve walking down that path. See what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who do not know God and on those who don't obey the good news of our Lord Jesus 
they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed. Remember our friends who I described at the beginning of this message who are wonderful people full of love in their hearts and seeking enlightenment and goodwill towards others but who do not want to know the God of Psalm 8 by name and who do not want to bow their lives in submission to his rule by his ways. You know people like that. You may be that person right now. And I I don't want to think about it. It's as much a terrible ending to the story as the other ending is wonderful. But God will honor their choice and yours, and mine, as to which sovereign we pledge our loyalty to. One group of people go to eternal destruction, clinging on to the failed authority of their own weak and inadequate sovereignty. And another group will rise in the strength of that day, eager to glorify and marvel at the majesty of Yahweh, So how do we choose? Those whose path leads to their destruction might choose emphatically to reject the story of the Bible, say it's untrue, turn their backs on this message of rescue from our rebellion. Often, though, they make a choice simply by being comfortable and assuming that one day they might come around to thinking more seriously about such matters. It feels important just not important enough at the moment. As we can expect, the Bible has something to say about this. Luke 12, 19 and 20. The comfortable man, satisfied in the enjoyment of his own glory, says to himself, take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourselves. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. If this describes you, I urge you not to be this person, but to run quickly to the other path. And this is the pathway of repentance and rescue. Isaiah 55, 5 through 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will freely forgive. Freely. We love that word freely in our culture, don't we? God will freely forgive. This forgiveness has been bought and paid for by the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is God himself in the form of a perfect man, come to offer us rescue. The Bible pleads with you to repent and turn away from your sins and to trust that his payment is necessary and also sufficient so that when you believe on him, he will forgive your sins and count them no more. And he will grant you eternal life as an heir with him will fulfill the promise of Psalm 8 to become a ruler in his marvelous kingdom, wherefore in eternity we can look to the heavens and marvel at which we will say, Yahweh, my Lord, 
How magnificent is your name in all the earth. The worship team would come up. If you would spend a moment just in prayer and meditation as we get set up, and we'll sing another song.